listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Or as Elvis Presley might say musically, Welcome to my world. Won't you come on in? I'm, I'm not going to sing anymore for obvious reasons. But that song, I got to tell you, that song has been in my head whenever I say the word welcome since I was 16 years old. Because when I was 16, I took my mother to see Elvis Presley live in concert at the Philadelphia Spectrum. And it was a fabulous experience. I, that's right. I'm one of probably the very few people any of you know who's actually seen Elvis Presley live in concert. And it was just me, my mom, Elvis, and more screaming middle-aged women than I have ever seen in one place up until the Women's March after Donald Trump got elected. And I got to tell you... Elvis sang probably five different songs at that concert that I can't really imagine anybody else pulling off, particularly pulling off in a rhinestone-studded jumpsuit. But he had a way. And, and this song, Welcome to My World, was one of them. And so I sometimes think if, if we didn't have such cool intro music for the, song, for the, for the podcast, I would want to switch over and have that be our song. Because, you know, this kind of is my world. Or it's our world, the conversation that we're having with each other and with the guests that we have. And I love this conversation. And I'm going to get right to it. I'm pretty excited about the conversation and the guest I'm going to share with you in just a moment. Yasmin Mohammed, who is a Canadian human rights activist. And in my mind, kind of a genuine humanist hero. Yasmin um, advocates for the rights of women living in Islamic majority countries. But she also advocates for the rights of people struggling under religious fundamentalism here in the West. And I got to tell you, as you'll see in this conversation, she put me in places and pushed me to places and got me feeling things that I haven't really thought about or felt. Because I think like a lot of Western liberals, I have been hesitant to say or think or do very much with respect to Islam. I mean, I'm fine to talk about all the weirdnesses of Christianity because that's where I come from. But Islam, I don't want to come off as Islamophobic. And I think as you'll see in the conversation, Yas Yasmin is like, hey, you need to take care. And she got me thinking about a lot of stuff. And I, I think hopefully our conversation will get you thinking about a lot of stuff that's really important. Um, what, the occasion of this conversation was she's got a new book out and she had sent me a note about that. And I had never talked to her in person, but I, I checked out the book and then I checked her out and we had this conversation. And I, I don't know many people who grew up in fundamentalist Islamic households and married members of Al-Qaeda. She's got a biography that's kind of out there, but she is a really worthy person to talk about this stuff. So I, I think you're going to like that that and I, I think it will add to our conversation. But one of the reasons I call it our conversation is because I hear from so many people who listen to the podcast in different ways. 
And this past week, I got a note that I want to share with you. And it, it hit me hard. And I, I, I think, well, I'll just read it and you'll understand why. Dear Bart, I think you might understand something that I am not finding in any other, in any other human being I am in contact with. The transition isn't always black and white. And I think by that, she means the transition from being a religious believer, a supernaturalist, to being a secular person. I sat in the tub this morning, feeling an incredible grief, because for the first time, I am realizing that my decisions are mine to make. I haven't jumped off the creator train yet. It still takes more faith than I have to believe that I evolved from some kind of cosmic sludge but I am slowly giving up believing that my life is being controlled. There is no more waiting for the Lord's leading, and that scares me. Even though I can't quantify what God's direction looked or felt like before, letting go of it now seems frightening. Part of me feels relieved, but part of me feels lost. I don't know how to define myself. And there is no community that fits the journey I am on right now. I have no religion, no label. I know what I want to do. I want to love my family. I want to help and inspire the people who come into my life. I want to create beautiful things and write heartwarming letters and stories. So I know what to do. I just don't know who I am. Isn't that weird? Wow, I, I, I can feel that loneliness, that sense that this woman is betwixt and between, that she's got just enough faith to make her miserable. She, 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 hasn't, she isn't able to let go of the, of the God thing enough to kind of feel an affinity or feel like she belongs in, in, in the humanist camp. But she knows that there's nobody out there pulling the strings. I, I'm guessing some of you know what that feels like too. And I think sometimes when we meet people in that place, in that, in that halfway place, in the, in the middle of their transitions, there's a temptation to sort of go like, oh, you should read this book or, oh, check out this podcast. Like I can help you get to the other side. But more and more, I'm starting to think that what we really need to do is just learn to sit with people in their, in their confusion and in their sadness and trust that at some point they'll actually be able to lean into the relief side of the equation instead of the grief side. And, and, and that at some point they'll be able to see the upside of this life having only the meaning we give it. I guess in some ways I wanted to read you that letter because as a teaser for what's coming on the other side of this interview, because as, as you veteran humanize me people know, I often read a Robert Ingersoll quote. And when I got this email, I immediately knew which quote I wanted to send to this woman. And it's a long one. It's a beautiful one. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. 
And uh, in the meantime, the, the kind of the cool thing is because that whole idea of there's the only meaning is in this life is what we what we make it. One of the primary ways that we make meaning in this life is by helping other people and by making things better for other people. And that sort of takes me right back to Yasmin Muhammad, because this is a woman who's re- literally put her life on the line to make things better for women who are stuck and who are voiceless and sometimes who are faceless. And so I listen, I'm not going to lead into it anymore. I think you're going to dig this conversation. I will look for you on the other side. I will read you this amazing quote. And if I am lucky, I will manage to get John to stick the actual Elvis Presley song, Welcome to My World, at the end of it. And you'll see what a true earworm sounds like. All right. This is me and Yasmin Mohammed chopping it up. Here we go. I'm so glad to meet you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, you bet. You bet. Um, I, it's, it's so, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited to talk with you. I'm a little bit flummoxed as to where to begin because you got so much going on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I and I don't know. I, you you may not know a doggone thing about me or who I am or where I come from. Well, I know I know quite. A, I'm I've met other humanist chaplains before, so I'm aware of your work. Okay. But yeah, but you can share with me anything else that you'd like. Well, to share. the only reason I bring it up is because I spent, you know, I I became an evangelical Christian when I was 15 years old. Mm. And my dad is a very famous uh, evangelical Christian leader. Um, So I kind of grew up in that world and spent most of my life as an inner city missionary, um, working in really poor neighborhoods uh, in the Christian context until I was about 45 years old. And, uh, And then, you know, long story that you don't need, I won't bore you with. Um, you know, I, I went through kind of one of those, I mean, my deconversion was sort of the death of a thousand cuts, but it finally mm-hmm. came to a, a full end, um, after a bike accident when I was about 47 years old. And, uh, and so I, in that transition, then, you know, you're like, I'm an evangelical Christian minister who doesn't mm-hmm. believe in God anymore. Where do you go Ooh, from there? Yeah. So, so I, I, I kind of went through this whole transformation. I ended up out at USC in Los Angeles being the humanist chaplain there for three years and then moved back here to Cincinnati, which is where my wife and I um, kind of that's it's kind of like the place that we feel most at home mm-hmm. um, a few years ago. But the, the reason why I bring it up is because you I was it. thinking about I was thinking about you mm-hmm. and I I don't even know whether to call your experience a deconversion story because Mm -hmm. I can't tell whether or not when you were growing up in, in this hijab and in this, and in this culture and in this strange family, whether you were ever really a believer. So I get that question a lot. And my answer is always, I was less of a believer, more of a, more of a scareder. I'm not sure. I don't know what what terminology works here, but 
I was too scared to not believe. So I, um, you know, I, I wished that I hadn't been born into a Muslim family. You know, I wasn't one of those people that really took, see, the thing is, is our Muslim God is very, very different from your Christian God. Like they're, they're chalk and cheese. So whereas the Christian God is very loving and forgiving and Jesus was pretty much a hippie and love on others and all that stuff. Um, Islam is very, you know, fire and brimstone, like, like old Testament kind of just anger and violence and detailed descriptions of how you're going to suffer if you don't follow. So as a child, when you're being taught all that, there is no opportunity for you to ever question or to think about, do I believe this or not? That, that never enters the equation. You, you, will, you believe it because it's told to you as fact and because you're too scared to even consider that, uh, that, that, you, that there's anything else. Do you know what I, I mean? mean? So. It, it is. It's interesting because when you say your Christian God, mm. um, I, I sort of, I, I traveled around Christianity enough to know that there were hundreds of different versions of God mm-hmm. in Christianity, in various Christianities. And some of them were pretty rough. Yeah. Uh, some of them were pretty yeah. mean. Yeah. Um, and, but, and, and I, I suspect that there's more than one Islamic God. Like depending on what tribe or what sect or what what well, imam you fall under. Um, again, probably- um, most with Christians you have thirty thousand. I mean, I keep on saying you. I know you're not Christian anymore, but I mean your <laughs> your background or your. That's all right. Uh, I grew you know, up your, there. Yeah, there are like thirty thousand different sects of Christianity. Right, it's unfathomable number of of different groups that all at the end of the day some are even like they consider themselves christian but the other groups don't consider them christian so right. you know, there's like this right. whole mess but anyway there's a lot of you whereas with muslims there 90 percent of muslims are sunni muslims that's what i grew up grew up under and then the second minority after sunni are shia and they're close to 10 percent so the all of these little ones that you're referring to, the remaining ones like the Baha'i or the Ismaili or the Ahmadi or all, you know, Alawites in, in uh, Syria, you know, tons and tons of groups, all together combined, they don't even make up 1% of the right. Muslim population. So what you're saying is true, but it's such a nominal part that it's not even worth mentioning the, but even but even within the sunnis aren't there hardcore right like sunnis and and more moderate sunnis like aren't there are isn't there a variety even within that one tradition yeah so we have to sort of make a distinction between if we're going to talk about the ideology or if we're going to talk about the people because if it's the ideology then those are 
that's pretty much that's codified like right that's sharia that's set in stone that's words on a page however the individuals muslims of course are going to you know they're they're as different you know they're they're individuals so of course they're all going to practice their religion differently um so to talk about muslims as individuals and how they practice their faith i mean i could never do that i don't know right because it's just too too many variables there but too many variations in your own life it sounds like when you were a little girl your mom as a single mom gravitated back towards um the mosque as a place to find some support and some community that's correct and she was she was one kind of sunny and then she married a man and it sounds like he was a very different kind of sunny yeah so in that this is a, a historical issue now that is what happened everywhere in the middle east and north africa is and you can you know go on google it's quite heartbreaking look at pictures of iran and libya and egypt and you know you name it any afghanistan you know all of these muslim majority countries what they looked like in the 50s and 60s and even in the early 70s is very very different from how they look today so there was a a very uh very clear difference um and everybody just became more fundamentalist everybody started to follow their religion basically so before that muslims in all of those countries were no different than your average not like you you were evangelical but just your average christian who identifies as a christian but maybe goes to church once a year you know or not even at all but they just kind of like that's the culture they were born into as a christian and so that's just the way it is but they never practice so that was what a lot of muslims were like before um things changed when um you know for a lot of different reasons but the political factor that happened here was the uh the soviets and the afghanis were fighting and when the afghanis beat the soviets with the support of america they felt really empowered and they felt like allah was on their side and that's the reason why they won and they had all of this energy and really a very high um morale and that energy needed to go somewhere and so they just continued to fight they continued to um spread the word and at the same time what was happening was the ottoman empire had fallen which was the big islamic empire and as a response to that the islamists came up so they were just a group of men who said okay well we lost our islamic um empire how can we get it back again and they surmised that they can't get it back again the way they got it the first time which was through the sword that they have to do it in a much more diplomatic way this time they have to use diplomatic means and so they decided that their method would be threefold and again this is all online they're not you know they're very transparent about what they're doing 
um, they said that they would do it through immigration, through the wombs of the Muslim mothers, so basically through childbirth, and through turning secular laws against themselves. So that's how they planned to get Europe back, basically, was through not raising a single sword, but through those three means. So now what you have are two opposing groups that both have the same goal. So one group are the jihadis. So, you know, they might have been called mujahideen in the, you know, in the 80s. So they are people that are willing to die for Allah. And then because they want to spread the word of Islam. And then you have the other group who are the Islamists who also want to spread the word of Islam. But they want to do it through much more diplomatic political means. So, so those two groups both got uh, strong, empowered. Yeah, yeah. And so, when you were growing up in, in, you were growing up in Vancouver. That's right. When you were growing up there, and and you got this new stepfather who comes into your family. I mean, is that what you called him, your stepfather? I never referred to him as that, but yeah, I just, the man who married my mother, basically. The man who married, yeah, okay. <laughs> I guess technically he is, but. He who will yeah. not be named. That's um, right. But when he came into your world, I mean, did you have siblings or were you? Yeah. Was, I have a brother and a sister and um, he had three kids of his own as well. And when he became presence and when that family, that new sort of family formulation happened it sounds like it just changed your life completely yes absolutely and so so was that in a sense was that when you went into the bubble um of kind of just uh, you know a, a kind of 24 7 islamic influence in your life yeah, and I think that's why you asked me that initial question about if I was ever a believer was because I always resisted because I had known life before Islam. And mm -hmm. so I when it came into my life, I didn't like it. I didn't like that um, birthdays were haram and music is haram and I was forced to study you know, or memorize words from this book and I was forced to pray five times a day and I couldn't play with my non-Muslim friends anymore. And, you know, I couldn't partake in hot dog day at school. Like, you know, it just as a kid, it, everything, I couldn't swim anymore. I couldn't ride a bike. I mean, it was this controlling tyranny that took over my life. So of course I, I resisted the whole time. Um, I resisted as much as I could until I started to go to Islamic schools and, you know, eventually you stop fighting because it just becomes ridiculous. Like it's just useless. You know that this is your life. You got to stop wiggling now. And, um, and, and yeah, so that's, it didn't happen immediately, but yeah, eventually you just kind of get in line with the rest of the school of the fish and you just you swallow in. all of your, yeah, swallow all of your fears and all of your anxieties and all of your unhappiness and all of your resentment and all of your anger. And you just do what you need to do because you don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to get in trouble here on earth by your family. Um, 
and you don't want to get in trouble for eternity by God. Yeah, and, and, and so at some point, you're indoctrinated enough that you do think, hey, there might be some eternal consequences here. Like, so oh, you may absolutely. not. Yeah. So you haven't necessarily, you're not necessarily experiencing this kind of immediacy that some believers talk about or experience where they feel like there's a presence in their life that's speaking no. to them and guiding them. But Never there is had any sense of that of, euphoric yeah. stuff. All of no, the, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I've spoken to some it. ex-Muslims. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, you know, I've yeah. spoken to ex-Muslims who say things like, I was really sad about losing my faith because I was losing my best friend. You know, I'd spent all of my teen years speaking, talking to Allah like he was my my guidance counselor. And I'm like, I cannot relate to that because I did not have that positive experience with him at all. It was very, very fear-based. Um, so that was, yeah. It, and it really just depends on how fundamentalist your upbringing was. That's right. really, that's the key. If you grew up in a family that uh, didn't take Islam so seriously and was more um, lenient with their rules when they were raising you, then you would have a very different experience than somebody who grew up with Islam being, you know, the center of their world 24 seven. Not just the center of the the world. There is nothing else. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so, so this followed you all the way in. Like you went straight from this household into being married, right? Yeah. And how old were you when you got married? So my Islamic marriage was at nineteen, um, and then we got legally married the year after that. Okay, and. How long, how long did that last? About five years. And that wasn't, that wasn't, a, it, it, it wasn't a step up, was it? No, unfortunately it wasn't. Um, there, that's part of the hope is uh, a lot of, a lot of girls do this. And I see this happening online constantly with different girls that I'm speaking to where they just get so tired of fighting their parents and that pressure to get married, they sort of convince themselves that, okay, well, maybe he won't be as bad. Maybe this will be, you know, it can't be worse. <laughs> you're so tired of fighting with your parents. You're like, oh, you know, I'll take a different, a different fight because it might you know, maybe I'll get somewhere more than I'm getting right now. And my advice to them is always the same. It's hard to believe, but you will miss these days. Like this is actually a lot easier. What you're in right now, resist being forced into a marriage because once you get forced into a marriage, it will get a million times more difficult. And um, yeah, you just... It seems like we all told ourselves at that point when we're getting pressured, 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 pressured so much, you kind of get to this point where you're like, okay, whatever, I'll just do it. And, you know, it might not be so bad, you know, just because you, you can't see another way out. And, and when, when the pressure was on you, was it pressure primarily from your own parents or was it pressure from 
the whole community. Yeah. So just like your dad was a famous evangelical um, preacher, was he? Yeah. 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 So my mom was, or is, I always speak of her in the past tense. Um, she is, or I don't know if she still is, but when, when I was growing up, she was the head of the Islamic studies department at the Islamic school. So she was the, you know, she was a pillar of the community. Everybody knew her. Um, and so there was a lot of pressure to be the good girl and to never step out of line and to be the example to all the other people, you know, all the other kids, especially. Yeah. So though the pressure was coming mainly from my mother, it was a lot of, you know, you cannot make me look bad in front of the community. So for example, I had been married to him for about, you know, just a week, not too long at all, was the first time that he punched me. And when I went to my mother and said, okay, he's he hit me, her response was to say, you cannot separate from him this early on in the marriage because in Islam, a woman can't divorce a husband. Only a husband can divorce a wife, right? So whenever there's a divorce, it always looks like it was the man's decision and the woman's fault. She's always at blame because he's the one who threw her out, basically. Because, mm-hmm. the you know, vice versa just doesn't exist. And so she said, if a man divorces his wife this early on after a marriage it's because she wasn't a virgin. And then it's this huge, shameful thing on the family because they know, oh, well, there's no other reason why somebody would divorce a woman so early on. It must be because he discovered she wasn't a virgin. So that was the pressure for me to stay was because if I left so early, the whole community would talk and they would talk about her because she was, you know, the head of the Islamic studies department. And so this would bring such shame to her, um, from the community. So that's why I had to stay. And then of course, not long after I ended up getting pregnant. And so then that's also another reason to stay. And at this point in my life, I had a high school education, so I wasn't, I wasn't in a position, neither financially, but also just psychologically. I was in an abusive life. You know, I had been abused by my, the man that my mother married and then this man that she made me marry. And so I had zero self-confidence and yeah, you know, it wasn't until I had my daughter that I, I started to find some strength just because I wanted to protect her from, from the world that I had lived in. And, and at that point, when you're feeling this kind of sense of the walls are strong around you and you're, you're trapped in this, you're still a hijab-wearing high school graduate. So, and niqab-wearing at this point. So oh, once wow. I married him, yeah. So it was head-to-toe black, all delivered from Saudi Arabia, gloves, thick socks, even like, so even my eyes didn't show. I was, if you, you know, if you look at how the women dress in Saudi Arabia, that was the outfit that I had on. 
Yeah, so I, I wouldn't. I, I would think that that would have a kind of a psychological effect of absolutely. You, you, of of keeping putting you in the mind says like I can't go out there in the world by myself. Like absolutely, I, like, I literally have never been exposed to the world. Yes, um, so it, it 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 puts you in basically a portable sensory deprivation chamber. You are your your sense of everything is restricted. You can't smell properly. You can't, you can't hear properly. You can't speak properly. You can't see properly. You can't touch properly. You're restricted in every possible way. And it's so dehumanizing to be under that shroud, you know, as if you're a corpse and you're, you're still alive under there, but Nobody can see you, you know, you're not a part of the world. You're just, you know, floating through. You can see people, but they can't see you. So you feel actually like a ghost where you're just walking amongst humans, but you're not a part of society. You know, like people can't just slight things, like just smiling at a person when you're walking by or whatever, like you, there's none of that, none of that interaction between you and, and other humans. So it was just me and my abuser. That was it. Cause I, I never left the house unless I were, was with him. And the only places we'd go really were the doctor for my prenatal visits once a month. And I was actually petrified of leaving the house. There is at one point my mom started bleeding from her nose and her mouth simultaneously, and I had to call 911. And I was actually quite scared of getting into the ambulance and going to the hospital with her just because you sort of become trained. Like it's, you kind of have this agoraphobia now. If you don't leave the house for so long, it's it's so uncomfortable to leave it. Even, I mean, especially when you're covered head to toe like that. You just, okay, so this is this is where I want to turn the conversation just a little bit because I I'm interested and I want to hear the rest of the story in terms of how you got out. Yeah. But I'm also really aware that this hijab stuff, in a sense, is crucial to your life now yeah. because you're you're not just a person who's sort of like this is how I escaped Islam and. And, and, and that's the end of the story. There's this strong sense I have that for you, the hijab is kind of a, I don't want to say symbolic, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a critical piece. It's iconic in terms of your frustration with not just the hardcore Islamic world that subjugates women in that way, but also the ultra liberal Western world that sort of says, Hey, who are we to say anything about how another culture manages its affairs? So there's, there's so many things with what you said there. And yes, you're absolutely right. Hijab for me is just the physical representation of all of that, you know, gender apartheid, just that subjugation, that second-class citizen way that women are treated under Islam. So the fact that you can't even have 
personal autonomy over choosing what to put on your own body, that is such an incredibly powerful way of subjugating women because you, and, and girls, because it starts from like seven years old. And you're basically being taught, you don't get to control yourself. You don't get to control what goes on your head or what goes in your head. You are just a vessel. You are, you are to do what you are told. And that's true for men and women. Um, you know, you're not taught to think, you're taught to listen, to follow. Sure. But it's but, way deeper. It's way it's, deeper than that. Mm -hmm. I had never heard anybody talk about what it's like to be inside of a hijab and like the sense, the, the, the sensory deprivation, the sense of being a ghost. Yeah. In, and I just thought to myself, gosh, I think if I put a, a, a goat, if I put a hijab on for a day and walked around, I would be freaked out. Like I'd be like, yeah. nobody could see me. I was smiling. They didn't know it. I like, I, I became invisible. And like, people would be freaked out of you as well. So it's reciprocated. Yeah. So, so when you were talking about that, I thought you do that to a seven-year-old. Yeah. By the time that kid is of it, you know, cause people often talk in the West about like, Hey, when these women have chosen this or they, yes. they've embraced yeah. it. And I go like, by the, if, 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 if you put me in that when I'm seven, like, whole parts of my brain are not going to develop it. You know, it's almost like the, those experiments where they, where they cover a kitten's eyes when it's, mm -hmm. when it's born. And then when they take the covering off, the kitten never gets a spatial awareness because the mm -hmm. brain develops at different places and it needs certain inputs at certain times in a, in a certain order. And I'm thinking, this has got to really fuck up a kid. And then the thing is, as I said, seven almost arbitrarily, because that's maybe a common time between seven and nine. But there are many little girls out there today who are toddlers. I see in Canada, I have seen toddlers dressed up like that. Are you going, in Canada? In, in Canada. Canada. I was just speaking to somebody the other day who was telling me about how she just couldn't help herself because she used to wear all of that too. And so she saw a little girl and she couldn't help herself, but just kind of have a sneer on her face, just angry, just sad, just upset, frustrated to see this on the child. And the father said to her, oh, you didn't see this before. And she said, well, no, I'm just wondering why it's on a child so young aren't you supposed to start putting that on girls when they're older, when they hit puberty or something? And he, he laughed and he said, Oh no, no, you have to get them. You have to get them trained from a young age. You have to get them used to it. And that's a very, very common response. Like and you that have to is break actually, their spirit early. You have to do it when they're young. It's easy. It's so easy. You can convince children to believe in Santa Claus and the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy and all that stuff. It's so easy to convince children of irrational things. And then when they're older, by then it's too late because they've been indoctrinated in it. But, you know, they, they talk about the choice, right? Like, yeah, it, try making the choice to take it off and then we'll see how the world around you reacts. And then we'll know if it really is a choice or not. Because whether you're in the Muslim world and you're going to get imprisoned for it, or you're going to be killed, you could be killed again in Canada. There have been cases of a teenage girl named Axel Parvez, 16 years old, was 
suffocated. She was choked to death by her father and her brother with the hijab that she refused to wear. So people say, oh, it's just a piece of cloth. What's the big deal? Well, that piece of cloth gets girls killed. There was a Saudi Arabian girls school that was on fire and they wouldn't get the girls out of the burning building because they weren't dressed properly and the girls all died. I could I, go on and on these no, pieces. No, and, like, I, I, and I know those stories. I've heard those stories. What's interesting to me, though, is I think about my evangelical Christian upbringing, and you don't have to threaten a kid with death. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, they just want to please their parents. Yeah, you, yeah you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and they don't want to burn in hell, and they don't yes. want to be cast out of a community when they know in their heart that they're not ready to, like, that they are not equipped. For the and they don't want to do it and they don't they're not happy about doing it but they'll do it because it's what is you know it, it's what's demanded of them and, and so they don't have I, the strength to fight back I, I, this indoctrination thing is the thing i i guess you know it's funny because i i spent so much time in inner cities and a lot of times in inner city you'll see a hijab wearing woman with kids running around in, in regular clothes even even fairly older kids and i think mm-hmm. that might be you know, maybe a black Muslims, uh, you know, something different going on. I, I just had no idea that they, that they put it on that, that early. Yeah. And, you could see some kids in diapers and hijab. Like it depends on how psychotic their families are. And I, and I, and honestly, I hadn't considered for a moment. I, I mean, this is so funny because I think of myself as like Mr. Enlightened interfaith humanist dude. And mm-hmm. yet, I hadn't really thought about what it would be like to be inside of there. And that's really important because I think that's what's going on with most people in the West is they're not, they're too fixated on making sure that Muslims are feeling comfortable and that they can do whatever it is that they want to do, that they forget to notice that sometimes what they want to do is cut out a girl's clitoris. So that's something that needs to be considered here. There are victims under this. There there is a minority within this minority. So when you're protecting this group and you're saying that, you know, any, we cannot criticize anything that Muslims want to do because that would be like, you know, racism or something, then what you're doing is you're create you're providing a cover for all the people that are being victimized by the those groups rules. That's the women, the LGBT community, the minorities, all of the groups that you pretend that you sort of purport to care about. So why are those people being ignored? Like it, 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 you, you've kind of, in the Western world, you have reached an impasse. You are at this crossroads where you have to decide is, is cultural, like, you, cultural relativism can only go too far. You've, you've reached a point now where you're gonna have to make a decision. For example, let's take the UK where they have this, this curriculum called No Outsiders. And basically in that curriculum, they're teaching that whether you are a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew, or whether you're gay or straight or bi or trans, no matter who you are, 
you will be included and you will be loved and you'll be treated with respect. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds great. Sounds wonderful. The Muslim parents were rioting and having their children out in front of the school rioting, saying being gay is not okay. And when other parents came and they tried to post rainbow flags or love is love or things like that, those parents were pelted with eggs and other things by the Muslim parents. And that kind of thing really makes me realize like, you're going to have to decide which minority group are you going to support? Because if you're only going to support people based on the fact that they are a minority group and ignoring what their values are or what their teachings are, but just saying, oh, well, you have darker skin, so therefore we must support you. If you're going to continue down that road, then you're going to find yourself supporting a group who will terrorize other groups. Or terrorize their own. Abs you know, yeah. Absolutely. Terrorize I mean, their own first and foremost. I mean, I'm talking I, about, imagine being a Muslim gay child in that school, hearing your whole community standing around screaming, being gay is not okay. Imagine oh, being a child in God, that like, community, like, right? I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. And yet, I'm with you. And yet, here's my, here's my thing, is that once we start talking about indoctrinating children into self-hating mindsets. This is where, like, I look at evangelical Christianity, and, like, one of the fundamental teachings of evangelical Christianity is a doctrine called original sin. Yes. It says that just for existing, just for being born human in a sinful world, you are a child of wrath. You deserve to burn in hell, and only the grace of God can rescue you from that terrible fate. Mm -hmm. um, and that if you are rescued and you become somebody who, um, if you become somebody who is part of the glorious kingdom of God, it is not by virtue of your um, of your own value or worth. It's 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 because of the the grace of God imputed to you. I, you, you're still worthy of burning in hell. Mm. You just get a pass. That's a bizarre teaching mm -hmm. to, to look at a two-year-old and say, hey, you deserve to burn in hell. Like you are unworthy of the love of God. And I, we're going to show you how Jesus is so wonderful and he loves you so much that he's going to rescue you from that. But basically... Yeah. You know, the kind of our doctrine, the doctrine I grew up with was basically like, dear Jesus, deliver us from God. He wants to kill us. Um, and he wants to kill us for good reason, because we're unworthy. This is some so pretty like, nasty stuff. But to teach a child, like, if I said to you, if, you know, if I went into a public school and said, listen, I want to teach kids that they are by nature awful, that they have no value. 
people would say like, no, that's child abuse, bro. You can't do that. Like you can't do that in little league. You can't do that in the drama program as a, as a football coach. You can't say but that. But you can kids. do it in religious class though. <laughs> you can do it in your family. Nobody yeah. can say anything about, you can teach a little girl that she's fat and ugly. You can teach a little boy that he'll never amount to anything. Like we see parents teach kids horrible things either by doctrine or simply by personal animus that we know are horrible. Like I've known little girls who were told by their dad, you're a tramp. Your mother was a tramp. You're a tramp. You're going to be a tramp. Like, and, and that has huge consequences in their lives. And, and if I'm at the grocery store and I see a father telling his daughter, you're a tramp, I'm not allowed to say anything. I I can't have him arrested. I I can't stop him. The state protects his right to teach his child any damn thing he wants to, whether it's about a magical God who's lovely or a magical God who thinks she's worthy of hellfire or no God at all. But just I think you're a piece of crap. Like we're not allowed to. and, And and. If I flip that, I go, well, do I want to live in a state where the state says, look, these are the things you're allowed to teach your kids, and these are the things you're not allowed to teach your kid. And if you teach your kids things that are not state approved, we will remove your child. No, I don't want to live in that. I don't want to live in that state either. But this indoctrination thing is really freaky to me. And when you bring it up, when when you when you take it from not just words, but to actual like garments and practices and clitoral you know, mutilation and things like that. I, I even just think of, of, of circumcision. Cause I, you know, I was circumcised for religious reasons. There was a mutilation of my body and it's diminished mm-hmm. my sexual pleasure. And it's, it's not half of what a woman goes through, but like, I'm like, we still allow people to mutilate their kids when they're born. Yeah. In this country, in Canada, in America, you know, like, mm-hmm. and it, and, and and what's funny is like we all go oh that clitoral you know all all, all these liberal westerners go like clitoral mutilation you know general mutilation that's a horrible thing but nobody's <laughs> down at the hospital protesting a completely in unnecessary surgery that is painful to a child and diminishes their body's efficacy later on like we never say anything about that because it's part of the culture. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Am I am I just like freaking out right now? Because like, no, I, have- I totally 100 percent agree with everything that you have said. But I think that the line in the sand here is that religious rights should never supersede human rights. If you have secular laws that state something, for example, you cannot abuse your children Then like for my example, when I went to my teacher and I told him of how I was being tortured at home, being hung upside down and being whipped, and I showed him the bruises and I told him everything that had happened and the police were involved and and child services were involved. And at the end of the day, they said, well, this is how your family chooses to discipline you and we cannot you know every we cannot intervene because this is like cultural freedom this is this is what's acceptable in their culture and so therefore 
you know, it, it has to be allowed. So do you think that would play that way today? Do you think that would still play the same way? Unfortunately, it still does play the same way. I have social services, it, people that have had to leave the ministry because they have been haunted by the fact that they have not been allowed to take children out of abusive homes because their government basically has said that this is, you know, it would be inappropriate to do so because of cultural relativism. That if this is the way that culture wants to discipline their child, then we should not intervene. It's not our place. That's what gets me upset. So what I'm hearing is if this child were of, you know, German or Swedish descent, they would be protected. But because they happen to be from a different descent, they will not be protected. And to me, that's really upsetting because, of course, regardless of where this child's family is from, where their parents are from, every child is going to be is going Damaged. to suffer from abuse in the same way. If I had, if I took my eight-year-old daughter and if I had put like a sheet over her and said, you're not going to be, you, you can look out these eye holes, but you're not going to be seen for the next five, you know, 10 years. They would have come in, a, they would have, I mean, child services would have been at my door. Mm-hmm. And if I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I just, I just don't. I don't want her to be sexualized. I just, I don't want anyone looking at her. I just, I'm just, right. I just don't, I don't want anyone messing with her. And this is a way of protecting her. She's a beautiful kid. And I just don't want anyone to give yeah. her a hard time. I would have, they would, I would have been stopped. Until you say something religious until you say, no, it's because some invisible man in the sky told me to do this. And then they'll be like, Oh, oh okay. Sorry. As you were continue abusing your daughter. Never mind us. We'll be all on right. Our so, way. Yasmin, am I saying that right, Yasmin? It's actually Yasmin. <laughs> Yasmin. Okay. I want to say yeah. it right. I want to say it right. You've obviously thought about this way more than I have. So, I'm going to ask you what am I supposed to do about it? So, yeah, this is, we'll go back to that question that you asked me earlier that I didn't respond to, which was what is the crux of this issue that is getting you so upset? Like, for me, the fact that you can talk about the problematic parts of the Bible or of the way Christians practice their religion, you're allowed to do that, you see. But when I speak about it from, you know, I had similar experiences, grew up in a fundamentalist home, escaped. If I just want to talk about that, it is not acceptable in Western society. I mean, it's not acceptable in Sharia societies, I understand that. They have blasphemy laws, they arrest people, they kill people for even just having humanist or liberal thoughts on a blog, you know, like Ra'af Bedawi flogged in the middle of the streets in Saudi Arabia because he dared to talk about humanism on a blog. So that's what's happening in those countries. But this is supposed to be the free West, you know, land of the free and home of the brave. And over here, the same blasphemy laws are happening, except that they are self-imposed. So I am being shut down constantly, whether it's by Twitter, whether it's by YouTube, whether it's by Amazon, 
any of these huge corporations, as soon as they see my name, if somebody posts a video, if you monetize your videos, if you put this up with my name on it, you will be immediately in record time demonetized. I don't have a YouTube page myself, but not a single person has been able to put up a YouTube video of me without it getting demonetized. Now, that is the thing that gets me so upset. Not only are we treated so differently for some odd reason, it's just another Abrahamic religion. Why can't I speak my mind in the same way you would speak your mind or in the same way somebody who left Hasidic Judaism could speak their mind or somebody who left Scientology or the Westboro Baptist Church? Or, you can leave any religion you want and you can talk about it and you can tell everybody about the abuse and the atrocities and your voice will be heard. But if you are coming from an Islamic background, then you need to shut up because now you're being Islamophobic. Now that is one of my biggest problems. Now add to that, icing on that cake, is the fact that these huge Western corporations are not only silencing people like me that are trying to speak out, but they are actually supporting the fundamentalist Muslims. So you will see who are the, you know, let me talk about the hijabs first of all. So you've got the hijabs being sold at Marks and Spencer, being sold at Banana Republic, being on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine, being put on Barbie's head. I mean, on and on and on and on. Hijab is splashed everywhere, just on any flat surface, any commercial, any TV show, any movie, you're just hijabs everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. I don't see them doing that with, you know, with the Baptist long skirts or the Amish scarves, like, because they can understand that's ridiculous. We're not going to have some woman, you know, in Mormon underwear in Playboy. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, but we'll have a hijabi in Playboy. That makes total sense. Like they're just the, the, the lunacy of the hypocrisy between how they treat fundamentalist Muslims and fundamentalist everything else drives me up the wall. Well, and this brings me a background to you know, even like I, I know you're buddies with Sam Harris. And I, I always remember watching Sam Harris on that Bill Maher show. Mm -hmm. And it was it was like, you know, Bill Maher mocks Christianity left and right. And everybody that laughs. Was, he did a movie on it. Right. He was an angel in it. Mm -hmm. And Sam Harris was not criticizing Muslims, but he was talking about like, there are doctrines like within, like, this is, this, this is a, a problematic ideology. And, you know, Ben, Ben, uh, what was his name? Ben Affleck. Yeah. Jumped on him. And then it mm -hmm. was this huge controversy. And I realized it's, it's sort of a version of what you're saying is that you're not really from the liberal left. It's considered bad form to to cr criticize islam i didn't realize even if you're coming out of it yourself like i knew it was i knew it wasn't okay for me to criticize it i thought you could get away with it no i get it left right i get it from every direction right because obviously i'm going to get it from my own community and my own family and my own people right there's no obviously but then i'm getting it over here too so it's a yeah. double whammy for people I, like I, me. I, I, I have an old friend, um, Irshad Manji. Yes. Who's who's a Canadian Islamic sort of reformer type person. Do you know her? Yep. I, I don't feel like she catches much flack. No, because she's Muslim. 
Oh, so because she says, yeah, she's she's this married lesbian Muslim doesn't who doesn't matter. wear a hijab. She's Muslim. I, I, if she's Muslim, she's not going to be. She's cool. She's not to be killed. I'm to be killed. My blood is halal. That means that it's permissible for any Muslim to kill me. In fact, it's encouraged. They would be celebrated because I'm considered um, like what I've done is considered treason. I have betrayed the Ummah. Right. Whereas she's just, she's just confused. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, okay. So whenever anybody says what we need to do is fight the corporations, I sort of go like, okay, like I, we're, we're, we're trying to fight the corporations all over the place. None of us are doing very well. But I also hear you saying that like an act of defiance would simply to be to claim your right, not claim your right, that's the wrong way of saying it, but, but to extend your critique to include Islam, like just treat them like Thank everybody you. else exactly. and you would be doing something radical. And when they- and so like, like, I'm like the most Christian friendly humanist you're ever going to meet like like i like i root for the best kind of christians against the worst kind of christians because like i know people are going to believe in god forever and so i would rather have them be in the most benign versions of that belief system i'm not out here trying to like tear everybody you know burn it all down because i know better but like you're absolutely right i do not i i just don't even talk about islam like I, I, I'll make fun of the worst kind of Christianity and I will try to encourage people to see the, the sort of the strategic value of the best kind of Christianity, but I don't even mess with Islam mm -hmm. for the same, for exact unconsciously for exactly the reasons you're talking about. I'm a good liberal. <laughs> yeah. But what you are is you're an inconsistent liberal is what you're being. right. I, oh yeah. 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 This is a confession I'm trying to make to you. <laughs> I'm trying to come clean. Yeah. No, but I mean, for every person out there who thinks that they're being a good liberal by doing that, that that's all I want them to understand is that they're actually being an inconsistent liberal. What you're saying is my liberal values stop here when it comes to, because when we talk about Islam, why are we talking about it? Why would I care if it was just words on a dusty old book, you know, in some library, I wouldn't care about it. My problem isn't that this ideology exists. My problem is that this ideology is making people suffer on a daily basis. That's my problem. I'm, I'm talking about these people who I relate to because I was one of them. These people that, you know, I was born and raised in the West. So when I talk about how difficult it was for my life, you got to remember that's like a drop in the ocean compared to somebody being brought up in Sudan or Somalia or Saudi Arabia or Iran or Afghanistan or Pakistan. You know what I mean? Like there are yeah, you know, millions I'm gonna, I'm, I'm and millions actually, of people. I, I, I agree with you and I'm going to respectfully disagree with you at the same time, because if there's anything I've learned from counseling people who have been hurt by their families um, and who have been hurt by religion, who have been hurt by strangers who have been hurt. It's that pain is never relative. It's always absolute. That when you, when somebody smashes your hand with a hammer, 
as you're as you're in excruciating pain, if somebody says to you, "Hey, you know, there's somebody over there, and both their hands got hit," doesn't that make you feel better? No, I like completely you, see where you're coming from, you, and I agree with yeah. you. But I just need and, to and say I, that when I decided that I wanted to get out of this world, I had an option. You could. Pull I it was off. able to get student loans. And I was able to get my daughter and I out of the house and we were able to start our lives over again because we live in a secular liberal democracy. Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not trying. I, you, I, I know you understand me and I, I hope you know I understand you. Mm-hmm. I guess what I, I the reason I wanted to say that is because I'm thinking of little Yasmin. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like I want to say to that little girl hanging upside down being whipped or that young wife being punched in the stomach on her first week of marriage, I want to say to that person, you know, what you experienced is infinitely wrong. There's, there's no, there's no measure to how wrong it is. And I'm just so grateful that you're able to be talking to me now. I, 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 I'm not as surprised that you escaped. I'm, I'm, I'm very surprised that you have this level of articulation and this level of self-confidence. I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm really shocked by that. And somewhere out there, there's got to be like a mentor woman or a really wonderful friend or like, like, I don't like, or did you, like, did you just pull this personality out of your ear? <laughs> well, um, it really helped that I left Islam about 15 years ago and I never said a word. I was not, I didn't go public right away. And I went through many, many, many rounds of therapy during that time. You got, and, to, you got to develop. Oh, yeah. So I had lots yeah. of time to get over it and all of this stuff. You know, up until I sat down to write my book, it was boxed away in my mind somewhere. And I had really, you know, they say fake it till you make it. I really did that. I just started over again. I said, okay, clean slate. Who do you want to be? Because now, you know, Islam was so uh, overbearing of every single aspect of your life. I mean, which foot you enter the bathroom with, how you put your right. shoes yeah. on, how yeah. you cut you had your to, nails, you had to totally everything. So once you remove that from your life, it's called a Surat al-Mustaqim. So it's the long straight path. And you, you're kind of like a horse with blinders. You just walk the path. And so once you remove those blinders, it is incredibly scary initially because there's just too much. Like freedom is really daunting. And it, after you get over that fear, which takes a long time, and then you start to embrace the freedom and actually start to see the beauty in it and the joy and the fun of being able to actually choose what you want for yourself. Um, that's what I had to go through that whole process and rebuilding myself literally brick by brick because I didn't, I, I was completely demolished. There was nothing there. And I basically got to say, this is who I want to be. I like this aspect of this, you know, and so that's what I want to be. And so therefore that's what I will be. 
And I just, but you just said a huge mouthful. You just said a huge mouthful in the sense of that you didn't do this publicly. No, not at all. Do this, yeah, um, quickly because you know a couple of high-profile Christians have just left the faith, and uh, you know immediately people are like, "You should have them on the podcast." You know, Mm -hmm. like you should talk like, and I'm like, "Oh, never." Not not for years. <laughs> this guys, these guys have a lot of work to do. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I had the same experience I, because of my wife um, and the kind of person she was, and, and and the way she had saved money for us. I was able to take the first six or eight months after I left the faith and just go upstairs with a bunch of books and try to figure out Who what I? the heck was because you know I had the same values. My, my, I mean, my Christian values. You would have liked my. You would have liked my Christian values too. They were the same as my humanist values, mm-hmm. but I needed to come up with a whole new framework in which to understand them. Mm-hmm. And I did have to deal with some of this freedom and responsibility and, and, and the reality of death. And yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot to do, yeah. a lot to do. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm so, I'm so grateful for your liberal socialist country that created a safety net that gave you the time Me too. to do that. I mean, honestly, like, you know, socialized medicine. I'm really grateful for that because yeah. without socialized medicine, you you might you might not have had a chance mm-hmm. to 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 sort yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I know a little bit about podcasting, not a ton. I know that if I know that like you and I, I got I got hours more for you <laughs> um, that I want to talk with you about. But I know that if I keep this going, um, people, people will see the length of the interview and. They won't listen to it, and it's very important to me that they listen to it. Yes, of course. For this this one in particular. Mm-hmm. So I want I want to just quickly segue to two things. Okay. You talked about like until I sat down to write my book, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I hadn't dredged this stuff up or dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about like your memoir, your first book, or are you talking about this book that you just wrote now? Well, it's actually one and the same. So I just changed the title. Okay. And okay. I, that, added, I, I was confused. Yeah. So this, uh, it was confusing for a lot of people, unfortunately. So I initially was only going to write my memoir and mm-hmm. then I decided to add a lot of polemic elements to it. So Ide- the idea piece. Yeah. Correct. So I won't, I, you know, whereas in the, my initial manuscript, I talked about my own experience being forced into the hijab, for example, in this new book, I extend on that and I expand and I talk about it globally okay. and how how many girls it affects and the problems that arise and et cetera, et cetera. So I just created that bridge uh, for everything. I'm glad you did that. I really mm-hmm. am because um, I, I, I think that I, I love the subtitle of the book mm-hmm. because I feel like what you're doing is you're sort of drawing in people and saying, there's something here for you. It's not just my story. Mm-hmm. There's there's a question that you that I think a lot of us are wrestling with, especially in these days of immigration arguments and reform and stuff, is we're trying to figure out what relationship should we have to Islam as a religion, to Muslims as people, um, the whole thing. And so I, I feel like this is a really important contribution to that conversation. I hope so. Um, and I. Yeah, no, I, I really think it is. My, my question is, have you, is it, is, is it already, are you already getting feedback? Like, do, do you know how it's being received? Have people reviewed it yet? Uh, so far it's been really positive responses. So I'm, 
I'm really happy about that. I know that the the negativity will will <laughs> will find its way to me, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I just um I did get a lot of negative feedback about the subtitle, so I'm glad you like it. Um I think that a lot of people who identify as liberal, myself included, see that title or see that subtitle and then they get just get their back up. They're like, "Ugh, we do not. This is, you know, she's just, she's just going to be attacking us." But I'm not, you know, if they would just take a moment to stop and and take a breath, I am not coming from the other side. I I'm know, not I know. coming you, from a conservative or Republican perspective saying, I know, I know. pointing my finger at the baddie liberals. I'm saying we need know, to take a look at what we're doing that is- Oh, I wish I'd have been there for you a, a year ago because what I would have said is make the subtitle how liberal, because what, what is the subtitle right now? How liberals empower radical Islam. And I understand yeah. that it's not. And it should have been how liberals like me empower, empower <laughs> oh, that, radical yeah, that's Islam. that's really good. Because yeah. we're, you, right, we're the ones. Yeah. I, like, like I'm, you're a liberal. Yeah. You, you know, we're, we're, and, and so, because that's how I read it. I, cause I knew who you were yeah. and it was like, she's, she's, she's writing a critique of, this is, this is prophetic, you know, cause that in, in the old classical biblical tradition, the, the prophets didn't lay the blame for all of our problems on them out there. That was mm -hmm. the demagogues. The prophet said the problem is within us. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is a prophetic book because what you're saying is, is listen, there's a problem. We're making a mistake. Mm -hmm. it, it, we're making the mistake and we need to do better. Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm getting from you. So I hope that when finish, when people finish reading this book, that they will no longer be confused about how to treat Islam and Muslims, because they'll recognize that it's no different than the way they treat Christianity and Christians or Hinduism and Hindus or Judaism and Jewish people. It's the exact same thing. You're always going to treat human beings with respect and you're always going to value them and you're always going to value human rights, but you are also going to always be honest about these ideologies and you're always gonna speak out against the parts of these ideologies that are bigoted, that are racist, that are homophobic, that are misogynist. And the reason why you speak out against all of these problems in these ideologies is because you care about the human beings that are being affected by these edicts. Yeah. And, and I think, yes. And I think that what you said at the very, very beginning, when I said to you, like, what was it, the household you grew up in? You were like, Hey, Bart, Look at your history books. Something happened in the in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And and the Islamists and the jihadists both got a big bump. And the whole the whole the whole tenor of the religion, the whole focus of the religion shifted. That can happen again, you know. Yes. I mean, th that's the funny thing. It's like there will always be Muslims. And so what we have to be in some sense, what we have to, to be working towards is not simply 
you know, the elimination of this terrible etiology. But in a sense, we, we want to try to encourage it and nudge it and move it for those that for those that are going to be into that stuff, for those that are that are prone to believe in supernatural gods who do stuff, there are better and worse there were, there are better and worse ways of being a, a, a Muslim. 100%. And, and, and so, you know, so that's one of the reasons I stay so engaged with Christianity is because, damn it, they're going to be there. Mm-hmm. And I want the world to be, I, I want the kids that grow up outside of that to not be harmed by it. And I want the kids that grow up within that to have opportunities to make decisions for themselves, you know, to not be so crippled by the form of Christianity that they grow up in, that they can't make moves later on in their lives. And right now I'm, I'm seeing that if I'm worried about that for all these fundamentalist Christian kids mm-hmm. who are being indoctrinated into original sin, I need to be equally, if not more worried about all these little boys and especially these little girls um, that are growing up uh, under the yoke. Um, so this, this is super helpful to me, Osman. It really is. Wonderful. Good. I'm happy to hear that. In the meantime, a humanist blessing on your head. Thank you so much. All right, I'm not sister, sure what I'll talk the to you later. Is, but take <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> All right, so that was me and Yasmin Mohammed. And if you want to find out more about her, if you want to get that book, if you want to get connected with her work, she is easy to find. And one of the ways that you can find her is going to barcampolo.org and going to the website page or humanizemepodcast.com. And on the show notes, we'll have all the Yasmin stuff. And, you know, if you're lucky, we'll also have a link to the Elvis song that I'm about to play you. But before I do, I promised you that Ingersoll quote for my friend who feels a little bit caught and who I'm hoping will one day embrace being on her own in the universe. And uh, the good Colonel Robert Ingersoll had this to say about his moment. When I became convinced that the universe is natural, that all the ghosts and gods are myths, There entered into my brain, into my soul, into every drop of my blood, the sense, the feeling, the joy of freedom. The walls of my prison crumbled and fell. The dungeon was flooded with light and all the bolts and bars and manacles became dust. I was no longer a servant, a serf or a slave. There was for me no master in all the wide world, not even in infinite space. I was free, free to think, to express my thoughts, free to live to my own ideal, free to live for myself and for those I loved, free to use all my faculties, all my senses, free to spread imagination's wings, free to investigate, to guess and dream and hope, free to judge and determine for myself, free to reject all ignorant and cruel creeds, all the inspired books that savages have produced, and all the barbarous legends of the past, free from popes and priests, 
free from the called and the set apart, free from the sanctified mistakes and holy lies, free from the fear of eternal pain, free from the winged monsters of the night, free from devils, ghosts, and gods. For the first time I was free. There were no prohibited places in all the realms of thought, no air, no space where fancy could not spread her painted wings. No chains for my limbs, no lashes for my back, no fires for my flesh. No master's frown or threat, no following in other steps, no need to bow or cringe or crawl or utter lying words. I was free. I stood erect and fearlessly, joyously faced all worlds. And then my heart was filled with gratitude, with thankfulness, and went out in love to all the heroes, the thinkers who gave their lives for the liberty of hand and brain, for the freedom of labor and thought, for those who fell on the fierce fields of war, those who died in dungeons bound with chains, to those who proudly mounted scaffold stairs, to those whose bones were crushed, whose flesh was scarred and torn, and to those by fire consumed, to all the wise, the good, the brave of every land, whose thoughts and deeds have given freedom to the sons of men. And then I vowed to grasp the torch that they had held and hold it high, that light might conquer darkness still. Man, come on. If it, I don't know, I don't know where you are right now, but if that doesn't touch you, you're listening to the wrong podcast. That's Ingersoll talking about what it feels like when you when you grasp that scary as it may be to be on your own in the universe there's a dignity to it there's an adventure to it there's a wonder to it there's a joy to it i hope for my friend who writes that at some point she feels that and i i'm filled with gratitude for for the heroes that came before and for people like yasmin who are still putting themselves out there, doing the work to make it possible for more people to feel that freedom, to experience that dignity, to know that joy. So listen, that's in our own small way. That's what we're all trying to do, right? Trying to make things better. And uh, we'll have somebody else in here next time. And we'll answer some more questions and we'll talk about some more stuff. And I hope you'll come back to humanize me so that we can help each other figure out how to help everybody else for the pure joy of it. See you next time on Humanize Me. And now, crossing my fingers, here's Elvis. Thank you. Welcome to my world. Won't you come on in? Miracles, I guess, still happen now and then. 
given to my heart Leave your cares behind Welcome to our world Built with you in mind Knock and the door shall be open Seek and you will find Ask and you'll be given The key With my arms unfurled Waiting just for you Welcome to my world Welcome to my world For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life. You could